Hello, welcome to Political Dharma. I'm Alan Zundell, and that bit of opening music that you heard was from Patty Rose. Today's show, I want to talk about building a party. My last two episodes were on the topics of creating a new party and a program for a new party. Today, I'm going to talk about building a party. And what authority do I have to speak on this topic? I wouldn't say authority necessarily, but I have experience in parties and other types of political organizations, as well as a long history of studying political phenomena. I was a political scientist for nearly 20 years, and I've also been engaged in a variety of parties, including um, the Green Party and to some extent the Democratic Party. I've also spoken with a number of people who were active in parties like the Libertarian Party and the Constitution Party. I've also been involved in the Democratic Socialists of America, which I would include in my category of parties as I'm speaking about it today, which is any organization, any group of people that are coordinating their actions toward a wide set of political changes. That is, they're not focusing on one specific area of change, such as changing voting methods or around abortion laws or gun laws or anti-war groups. I'm talking about a group with a larger agenda. So that's pretty clear what political parties generally are. But I'm also including groups of coordinated actors who are pursuing a broad agenda but are not necessarily pursuing or have state recognition as a party. That is, they don't necessarily intend to put their name next to candidates' names on a ballot. Here I would include the Democratic Socialists of America because they are pursuing a broad agenda with coordinated actions, at least coordinated to some degree, as well as any large organization can. Well, I wouldn't say as well as, but they are trying to coordinate their actions, and uh, they haven't yet tried to obtain a ballot line as a formerly recognized party. So that's some of my experience and my credentials. I've studied parties and talked to people and been involved in parties and other types of political organizations. And I've explained to you what I mean by a party. Now in laying out how to create a party, I'm gonna um, draw lessons from all these studies and experiences in three areas. The first is, uh, getting a party off the ground, getting a party started. The next is forming a functional organizing core. By that, I mean a smaller group that is responsible for or takes responsibility for building the party up, coordinating it, getting a group together that can uh, try to build something larger. And then finally, the shift from an organizing core to a mass party that is one that can attract wider uh, a wider public to its agenda to either vote for their candidates or support it in other ways such as being a uh, an activist for particular campaigns or um, spreading the word for their campaigns or donating money or what have you so those are the three steps i want to talk about first creating a party and second forming a functional organizational core, and finally shifting toward being a party that has mass reach. Creating a party. There's some time-honored ways of creating a new party, and the first of which is breaking away from an old party. That's how new parties are often formed. People that are actively involved in politics usually get involved in a party group of some kind, and if they are dissatisfied with the direction of that party, 
they and people who think like them may break off to form a new party. That's also happened in the case of uh, intentional desire to get involved in a existing party and then break people off for a new party or for a party that's trying to get itself off the ground. Trotskyites were famous for this, trying to infiltrate other groups such as the Socialist Party of America and try to split away, either gain control of that organization or split away enough people so that that party, the original party is greatly weakened. I'm not um, a fan of doing that. And to some extent, it's inevitable. I mean, if you're involved in politics, you're probably involved in parties and the people you know are to some extent involved in parties. What I would do is not deliberately break people off from an existing organization, but if I know people personally who are dissatisfied with their experience in a party or with parties in general, and they have similar views as me, I'd start conversations with them. And I've done this to some extent. And in fact, this video series is trying to reach a few more people by talking about what I'm trying to do or what I'd like to see happen and seeing how much interest there is and seeing if you can get something going. Now, the first traditional method I said was breaking off from another party. I'm saying that's not the favorite way to go because it causes a lot of animosity with people in the older party. Whereas if, if you do share some views in common with the members of the older party, there should be ways you can cooperate towards common goals. And if you have disagreements about the way to do it and want to form an independent effort, you should still part on good terms. Maybe not always possible, but I'd say um, that's better than the alternative, which is you're both small parties fighting with each other all the time and competing for the same group of people in a not very friendly way. Uh, it can damage both efforts. The other traditional way of forming a party is that a candidate runs for office and attracts people to a program that's not being really addressed by the existing parties. Here we have good examples of uh, Andrew Yang running in the presidential primary election for the Democratic Party a couple of years ago. And then he split off to try to form a party around his platform of specifically universal basic income, but also a few other areas that he thought were important to be included in a political program. And he's been trying to form the forward party. And I think they've set a good strategy for building that party, which is not immediately to try to gain ballot access because our two-party system is biased against alternative parties, but to first try to change voting methods to make it more possible to run. And I'd recommend that for anybody interested in parties outside the two-party system, because not only does it make it easier for you to create a new party or for your existing alternative party to get a hearing, but that's really the, the main obstacle in the way of parties who have similar views working together. If you have a more preferential system, parties that have similar agendas can actually work to advance each other's candidates, but that's getting off on a sidetrack. So running for office and then getting contacts from people that seem to like your uh, program or are interested in the point of view that you're expressing is a time-honored way and something that works well. For myself, I doubt that I'm going to run for office in the future. I've, I've done it once, not with the intention of creating a party, but of spreading a message about voting reform. This was uh, for the Green Party here in Oregon. And I don't know that I'm going to live long enough or have the opportunities or desire to run for office again. So for me, that's out anyway. 
Um, the, the alternatives then are breaking away from an old party or trying to just talk to people you know who are dissatisfied with parties and see if you can get them interested in starting something. And then finally, running for office yourself and building upon the people that show you any kind of interest or support, try and get contact information, contact them, and then get some kind of conversations going towards the end of seeing if you get enough people together to create a critical mass and then saying you're a group now that you're going to try to establish a party. So that's the first step. Now, the second step is forming a functional organization or organizational core. And I explained what I meant by a core is a group of people that are going to try to guide this group process as it gets established and um, finds ways of working together. And here, I think it's very important to make sure you don't jump into this too fast, but rather you make sure everybody is pretty much on the same page as far as their position toward the economy, that is the, large, the way the economy is organized, and their position towards politics, that is what they think about the electoral system and how to best approach it. Here I see that some groups, the ones I have had experience in, in particular, like the Democratic Socialist America and the Green Party, started off with a, uh, a kind of a general slogan or um, symbol for who, what they stood for. But in getting going, they never really coalesced around the questions of what was their attitudes towards the political economy as a whole. By that, I mean, is your position accepting of capitalism or not? Do you think it's possible to reform capitalism to the degree that it will serve people's interests and you don't need to move beyond capitalism into some type of new economic system? So that's one dividing line there. And if you do want to see a new economic system, what are the contours of that? What does it look like? You need to get on the same page about those questions before you try to get a group going. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself, as you become established, creating inertia around factions that are trying to gain the upper hand and advancing their point of view. Because the point of view you take on the economy and the economic system is going to determine the kind of strategies and tactics you take. And the second one is your attitude towards the political system. You think our political system is actually open to a party and candidates who want to advance towards gaining office. Maybe if you work through the Democratic Party, that is possible. And there's been a number of groups that try to do that. The Democratic Socialists of America has done that to some extent. And there has been justice Democrats that have tried to do that. These are groups that have mostly taken a progressive position or what might be called a social democratic position of you know, let's leave capitalism in place, but create a restraining framework around it to direct it to more social ends, avoid the kind of social bads that it might create and uh, transfer some money from the very wealthy to the people who need it more. So they get a program for keeping capitalism in place. Um, now the Democratic Socialists of America have had fights and factional uh, struggle over whether that is uh, truly the point of view they should be taking or toward to move towards something that goes beyond capitalism, some form of explicit socialism. 
uh, a more socialist goal in line with the traditional goals of having workers in control of the economy in some way, rather than having it stay in the hands of capitalist investors. And that's almost inevitable because when Bernie Sanders ran for president, again, a candidate who helps build a party, not in this case start a new party because he explicitly has refused to do that, uh, to join with either the Democratic Socialists of America in a, you know, as a member and a, uh, a candidate who is operating with the backing or the, the um, with that he's a member of that party and he's representing that party. And he also refused the Green Party's potential for taking a nomination for me. I'm not sure that would happen, but some Greens were talking about it. Anyway, when Bernie Sanders ran, he ran in a program that was largely progressive rather than more explicitly moving beyond capitalism or attacking capitalism as the problem. He attracted a lot of people in the Democratic Socialist of America, as did even more so probably Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she ran and won two years later. So it brought a new a lot of new blood into the Democratic Socialist of America because both of those candidates talked about democratic socialism. People who are interested in their agendas and are interested in their agendas and are looking for an organization to get involved in will often be attracted to the Democratic Socialists of America because they use democratic socialism in their name. But as they entered into, there was a number of people who were already members of that and people joining who also saw the potential for a stronger socialist movement in that organization a lot more interest in socialism. And this other faction were people that already had views that went beyond the progressive view towards something like a form of socialism, an idea about how workers should be the ones that ran the economy rather than capitalist investors. And so there's been a struggle between those two groups to, to gain the, uh, to, to try to move the organization as a whole in their direction or or find some way of um, making sure they each have an established agenda within that organization so they can recruit people. That would probably end up in a uh, um, either because of the inertia of it, an internal struggle for leadership, or um, in one of these factions breaking off at some point, splitting the party, weakening them both, and in the hopes that one of them will prevail. Usually it doesn't always work out like that. So you have to have a uh, position towards the economy, towards the political economy as a system, and also towards whether or not elections can be done in a fair way. Uh, in the United States, of course, you're going to deal with the two-party system, so that creates strategic dilemmas around whether you should just stick with trying to infiltrate or change the agenda of the Democratic Party, which was actually the original goal of the DSA. It was a remnant of the old Socialist Party of America, in which a lot of people found that they could not win against a two-party system. And uh, they tried to create an organization that would actually work within the Democratic Party. So that was their origin. Um, and that, that would be a position to take if you think there's really no room for other parties. Now, if you think there is room because some places have changed the rules of the voting system and others seem poised likely to do so, if you think there's some openings there, you can pursue that path actually creating a new party and um, running candidates in the name of that party rather than uh, trying to work within the Democratic Party. You could seek a ballot line, even if you thought that would be advantageous. 
And of course, there's other positions towards this as well, which would be even if you can't win, it's worth establishing an independent identity as a party so that you could reach more people and educate them on the kind of issues you want to educate them about. Established parties like the Green Party, which have little hope of winning partisan elections, anything beyond the local level, have pursued that strategy as well, because they recognize through hard experience, probably, but uh, also through just noticing how things run in general in the United States, that alternative parties don't have a lot of chance of actually winning higher level office, but they do have a chance to run under the label that will then, under a different label that represents a different way of thinking about politics so that they can reach people that share that view and bring them more into the movement. Maybe they'll... Um, engage in that party's politics, maybe they'll just change their views about a lot of things and help out um, in, in ways that are outside of the party system. There's a lot of ways to advance political programs outside of being a party. Obviously, you can run issue campaigns, you can um, run educational campaigns, you can um, try to form uh, alternative types of organizations that are what they call prefigurative, or you might say reflective of the kind of vision you have, like creating workers' cooperatives or something. There's a lot of ways you can work outside the system. And in fact, as the Green Party stand it, I delved into the history, the early history of the Green Party quite a bit, because as a member and leader here in Oregon, I started to question, well, what were the intentions of the people that started this party? Do they recognize that we would run into these obstacles? actually wrote a book about that. Look into it if you're interested. But the Green Party started out with mostly just a label, a symbol, we're Greens. And there was, they tried to get a lot of people together who had environmental concerns around a larger agenda, including a lot of other issues like anti-war, anti-militarization, um, women's rights, civil rights, other things that were more on the left end of the spectrum, but they didn't really have a clear position on the economy. Some were thought of themselves as socialists. Others did not. They thought that it was possible to create a more environmentally conscious economic system that's not necessarily capitalist or socialist. So they're pursuing different types of economic agendas. And I think that hindered the creation and development of this party. And to this day also makes it difficult for them to form a coherent functioning unit um, because they don't see eye to eye in those kind of questions. There's still some dissension about that and competition for leadership within that party, just as there has been within the Democratic Socialists of America. So getting a functional core means making sure people have at least that broad picture in, in common of what they think about the political economic system and how much they want to change the economic system and how open the political system is towards their endeavors. Both those things will have a lot to do with creating a common strategy. And if you don't see eye to eye, you're not going to be able to agree on strategy and there will be endless fights and factional uh, struggle for control that debilitate your ability to go beyond that point. Now that's one kind of issue that stops groups from becoming functional. I think the other thing is really their their um, point of view about leadership within the organization. There's often on the left a uh, jaundiced view or a skeptical view of leadership of any kind. And it's my position after watching these kind of things for a number of years, I could be wrong, there could be something else possible that I haven't seen yet. 
But when you try to build an organization that's going to have um, to act strategically as a coordinated body, uh, you can't do it without some sense of leadership, without people offering a uh, strategic direction, talking about how to get there, talking about how to um, trying to guide the organization. Usually people with more experience or knowledge of how uh, organizations function, people who tend to take a leadership role and other people will follow their lead. That's essentially what makes you a leader is other people are following your lead, right? But there is a skepticism or suspicion of leadership as being an attempt to take over and uh, to eventually kind of dictate terms and have it a following just a view rather than giving more control to the ordinary folks. Now, people that come in as activists and don't necessarily adopt leadership positions want to have some say in what's going on. You don't get involved, as, very involved as a member, if you don't feel you have a voice. And I've seen groups struggle over this. What is really required is some balance between membership ability to change out leaders if necessary, so some control over leadership, and leaders who are willing to continually keep in touch with the membership and respond to their needs and desires. It's a, a two-way street where people have to be willing if they want to, uh, if they want no leaders, that's impossible. And you're just gonna try to shoot down anyone that steps forward and the group will never be able to cohere enough because it doesn't have a leadership. But if you have a leadership that's too overbearing, you'll never grow because people will come in who feel like they have something to say as well. They have experience, they have ideas, they have knowledge, and they want to share that and see that the leadership is open to other people coming into the leadership, open to other people perhaps replacing the current leadership, um, and open to new ideas and different ways of thinking and knowledge that they may not have. So on both sides, you have to have a balance between people willing to step up and be leaders and a membership that's willing to allow people some latitude to do that without necessarily giving them free reign. I should say without giving them free reign because that's not something you want. That's a del delicate balance to take, but there has to be recognition that both those sides are important. You can't have a perfectly flat organization where everybody has an equal say in a world where not everybody has equal opportunities to uh, engage in organizations and understand how they function and uh, have knowledge and background and how to do things. So people have different skills, different levels of knowledge. Maybe we can work toward a world in which people gain that knowledge and gain those skills so they become more equal partners, partners in the organization. And that would be an important Thing to do in a democratic organization as well. But you got to recognize it to begin with, and probably through the foreseeable future, you're going to have some people that are more qualified or more have more ability to play a leadership role. Just be careful of the leaders you pick, that they are going to respond to the to the people who are the general, um, the active membership. So those are two problems that come up often, and especially on the left, the idea that uh, you can somehow dispense with leaders or do a direct democracy. I think that's been a problem, particularly in the Green Party, the idea that somehow the will of the people is going to emerge through conversations over time without needing some people to take a lead in, in uh, putting forward ideas and persuading other people toward them and then trying to coordinate people towards them. To do without that, I just have not seen it happen. And when it tries to happen, it's also, it, it's often not really democratic. It's a small group within 
the organization that is participating in um, trying to, as a group, establish control. That leaves out the general membership who are less active and don't have the time to spend in long meetings, uh, leadership meetings or uh, conventions or uh, chapter meetings or what, what have you. There's always going to be a select group that is more actively involved and wants a greater say, but a much larger group that should have a say in this as well. Um, so those are the two things that keep, I think the primary things that keep a group from being functional other than just personality issues that are present throughout life and you got to learn to navigate, especially if you want to be doing any kind of political organizing. But those are the two things that are the big problems I see, especially on the left. One is not seeing eye to eye on your position on the economic system or the political system. And the other is having an unrealistic view of how to um, how to work with the need for leadership, how to, how to reconcile the issues around leadership and uh, abusive leadership and um, accepting leadership as inevitable and important. Those two things. So creating a functional group is important before you try to reach out to a more larger base, a larger mass. Uh, if you don't get those things in place and you start trying to reach out to a larger mass, you're either going to churn through people because they come in into the organization and realize there's things that are unsettled and keeping you from moving forward, and they'll drop out and burn out, and you will probably stay stuck in low gear trying to sort that out before you can get anywhere. The mass will come in and the mass will leave, and you won't get very far. That's my observation anyway. So now making the switch from an organizational core to a mass level is another shift that you have to make, and it's a shift from the more ideological level to the more, more the level of people's material interest. And I say that because the organizing core are people that are usually motivated more so by their ideas about how things should go than they are about things like how this is going to affect me. Now, of course, for everybody, both those things are important. You're not going to contribute to a group that you think is going to institute changes that are going to be uh, against your own interest, uh, make your life worse unless you're highly motivated by um, ethical or moral concerns that you, you're willing to sacrifice your, your own good to a large extent for the greater good of the public. But those kind of people are rare. <laughs> and uh, uh, some of them, who pretend, there's plenty who pretend to be that way. I'm not sure that there's that many people in practice. Um, the one I can think of is Mohandas Gandhi was such a leader, and there's probably others, but they're not the most common people in the world. People are willing to make sacrifices. People do act on moral basis, and I think that's important. But material interests are also important. So an organizing core is going to really coalesce around a picture of the things I talked about. What's your position on the economic system? What's your position on the political system? They're going to cohere more around that. But if you try to make that the, the genesis of your uh, reaching out to people in general, it's not going to work. The mass of people out there do not think in ideological terms. They do not have um, highly um, developed ideas about how the economic or political system works. Of course, they have ideas, but their preoccupation is not going to be find other people who share your ideas. They're going to be find other people that seem like decent people that you can get along with, that you share something in common with, and who are pursuing an agenda that's going to help you and not hurt you. In other words, I'm talking about moving from the level of these are the activist core of your organization, and these are the voters that you want to attract in to vote for your people. 
That's a really hard step to make without starting to think in slightly different terms. You cannot just go out and say you're socialist because that means a lot of different things to different people. You got to talk specifically about how your agenda is going to help them with the things that they're currently experiencing as a problem. So you have to translate your general point of view into specific issues that address the needs of people at that contemporary moment. And that's a hard shift for some people to make because what people are thinking about and which groups of people are gonna be affected how um, is pretty fragmented in the current United States. Socialist side, we often talk about, well, our target is the working class, but the working class is composed of a lot of different kinds of people with a lot of different interests. You have a lot of people who work for a living, but also have some levels of uh, assets. They're, they are owners or investors in a home, maybe in some other real estate. They have pensions with stock plans. Some of them you know, are gonna be in a position where they have different interests that can conflict with the interests of other people who are workers, but don't have that kind of backup stuff. Or take, for example, some people will be greatly benefited see themselves as benefited by something like a universal basic income, but other people will be thinking less about how this is gonna help me uh, financially and more about how this is gonna hurt me paying taxes. They make assumptions about who's gonna pay the tax and how this is gonna affect them overall in the balance. So you gotta have a program that addresses people where they're at, but in the United States, people are really fragmented about different lines. They do not think of themselves in class terms. That is not very, um, that's kind of foreign to them. And socialists have always tried to start out by saying, this is why you should think of yourself in class terms. I think in the contemporary United States, maybe it would work back in the day when most people were crowded in factory jobs, didn't have a lot of assets of their own, and essentially you know, were organizing within industries, trying to create unions or trying to get better wages and working conditions. Could have worked in that day. You could see them as a class more easily and they could be persuaded to see themselves as a class because they had so much in common. But today, people don't. They think of themselves in other terms. They think of themselves as Americans first rather than members of the working class. They think of themselves as Christians or some other religious label. They think of themselves as part of some group that has been in various ways oppressed. They can think of themselves as um, having ethnic origin in common with other people like Irish Americans or Arab Americans or African Americans. Uh, they can think of themselves in terms of their professional role or their career. There's a lot of ways they can think about themselves and you have to be able to look at the larger mass of people and determine which of those are going to be the ones that haven't been well represented by the other parties and which your program can appeal to in a way that directly affects a problem they are actually experiencing leading them more towards understanding to some extent what your overall program is, but mostly hitting them on the level of where they live on the ground, so to speak. So I've been talking for about a half an hour. Um, that's, that's pretty much what I wanted to cover today. I hope you get something out of it. Maybe some of those lessons will apply. Maybe some of them are just, you know, other people can contradict me and say it really is not that way or add to it or, you know, fill out, flesh it out a little bit, whatever. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me uh, making comments on my YouTube channel. That's Alan. Uh, no, it's not. I was going to say Alan Bothick. That's an old name. It's Political Dharma. You can look for me on Facebook. I just created a new group for Political Dharma. Nobody's there yet. Welcome. Come on in. Say hi. 
uh, or look for me on the platform Mastodon if you want to talk. Uh, and my handle is Political Dharma at mstdn.pls, which stands for Mastodon Plus without the vowel. So look for me there and wherever you're listening to this, if you've stuck around this far, you must have gotten some out of it. So like, share, all that rest, all that stuff. Um, and I hope to that you tune in again for the next episode where I'll be continuing this kind of discussion and um, talking about different aspects of political parties and my project, at least my my project of talking about creating a new party. Not sure if I'll actually do that. I may decide it's possible that either the Democratic Socialists of America or the Green Party, both of which I've been involved in to, to at various times, um, may find themselves moving in a direction that's closer to mine, in which case they'd be more compatible with what I'm trying to do, which is a more socialist vision, but one in which you work to get political power in order to devolve it back to workers and the people rather than using that power to somehow establish your own control over the economy, presumably in the name of the workers, but doesn't always end up that way. Uh, so we'll see where this takes me. I'm just going to talk about it for now and um, hope you want to join in the conversation. A little more Patty Rose. Goodbye. I see the chains are breaking We gained our focus, the moves we're making We'll prove to determine our self-worth As a passenger on this vehicle earth